Just like we pick up our keys and our mobile phone and our wallet and put them in our pocket, we need to to pick up our face covering in a bag and stick it in our pocket and have it with us. It's a habit. It's a behavioural change. From today, exactly two years to the day since Ireland announced its first case of COVID-19, we can finally take off our masks. Neffet recommended that the government remove the mandate for face masks in certain places. While masks may still be recommended in those settings, they would not be legally required. Mask wearing is one of the last COVID-19 restrictions to be removed. And on paper, life now appears pretty much as it was before the pandemic kicked off. But in reality, Ireland is a very different country to the place it was back in February 2020. I'm Sarah Pollock, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we ask, how has the pandemic changed Ireland? Jennifer O'Connell is a features writer with the Irish Times. Jen, you've written a lot on the pandemic over the past two years, covering everything from working from home to the crisis in our health service. How are you feeling today, knowing that nearly all the restrictions we've lived with on and off since March 2020 are effectively gone? I think, to be honest, I feel kind of guilty that I'm not happier about it. You know, I I feel this kind of slightly strange and unreal air about it. I feel that after two years of isolation and hardship and disconnect from each other and worry and anxiety and sadness, that we should just all be breathing a huge sigh of relief and, you know, wanting to go out and, and celebrate. And yet... I don't know whether it's a superstition uh, about, you know, getting ahead of ourselves because we've been knocked back a few times before or whether there's this kind of very real and justified, I think, concern about people who are vulnerable and how they might feel about the fact that we're today divesting ourselves of, of our masks. So I ha- I can't quite figure it out, but I think that I'm not alone in this. I think that a lot of people have quite mixed feelings about it. We're not sad to be saying goodbye to the last two years in any way, but I don't think that we feel as 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 happy as we expected to feel. And I don't think that we've yet had that huge sense of relief. And I was I was thinking about this and trying to figure out what it is. And I, I have a daughter who just did her junior cert mocks recently. And I was remembering, I was talking to her about how she felt when she finished, you know, she finished the mocks and she could take a little break from studying. And I was remembering when you do your leaving cert and you finish your leaving cert and you keep getting that kind of slight, you know, niggle that you should be doing something. There's something really important that you should be doing and you've forgotten to do it. And you kind of, you find yourself almost relaxing and then jolting upright and going, oh, there's something I should be doing. I feel like that about worry. I feel as though it's too soon to let go of worry and that probably, you know, there's, there's something I should be anxious about. Now, that said, two people in my house had COVID last week, having escaped it the entire way through the pandemic. So that might be colouring my view a bit. We were back in lockdown last week. And it did feel kind of odd to know that if that had happened a week later, we'd have all been carrying on regardless as though, you know, as long as we were asymptomatic, there was no need for anybody to stay home. So I I think that probably has has like dampened down my enthusiasm a little bit. Jen, let's talk masks. If you'd asked, I imagine almost any Irish person to put on a surgical mask before walking into pennies two years ago, they would have laughed in your face. I would have laughed in your face. But now... From today, even though we no longer have to wear masks in shops, restaurants or bars, many of us have grown very used to pulling that piece of material on our face in public settings. How are you feeling about that change? It's a really strange one, isn't it? I I wrote a piece um, kind of related to this last week and I was asking people their views on social media and I was surprised at the strength of feeling 
many people have that it's too soon to say goodbye to masks. And I think there's almost there's almost a comfort in them. And, and I mean, again, you know, I do think we have to be mindful that there are people out there who are still medically vulnerable, who are still really fearful of, of catching COVID. Um, and they're not confined just to, you know, one setting. Like they're not just in, in hospitals or in, in your, your doctor's office. Those people are out and about in, in society the same as everybody else. So I think we have to be mindful um, of that. But I think even beyond that, there's a sort of a reluctance, I think, amongst a lot of people to divest themselves of their masks now. And I think it's a really interesting social phenomenon. And, and again, you know, I, I mentioned to my, I have two teenagers in secondary school who've been wearing masks for ages now. Um, and I mentioned to them a couple of weeks ago that it looked like they might not need to wear a mask um, beyond the end of February. And both in both cases, they were slightly dismayed and a little bit kind of reluctant to give up their masks. And I have to say that that worried me. I thought this isn't normal, you know, for 15 and a 14 year olds to have grown attached to wearing a piece of fabric over their faces. I think as well, um, I think the COVID has kind of, it has given us an excuse, I think, to judge each other's choices, each other's lifestyle choices. So in the beginning, we were making judgments about teenagers and, and kind of Cheltenham goers. And then we were making judgments about neighbours having friends around. I mean, I don't know if you remember, Circa, all the, the tweets on, um, you know, that were going out in the first summer of lockdown, people were giving out about their neighbours having barbecues and having like two or three people yep. in their garden. Um, and then, you know, there was giving out about people wearing their masks wrong. And then coming up to the Christmas of that first year, there was a lot of complaints about people going out to pubs and nightclubs. So I think it's inevitable that there will be a degree of, of tut-tutting about other people's mask wearing this week. But I think we have to realise now, we have to shift our mindset to accept that it is actually people's personal choice. You know, beyond healthcare settings where they are legally obliged to be still worn, um, on public transport, we're told to use our judgment, which I think is code for being told that, yes, it is preferred that you would wear them, but we can't make you. But everywhere else, it's up to you. It's your personal choice. Um, and I think we need to accept that, however we might feel inwardly. This has never been the kind of country where people walk up to a pregnant woman, as once happened to a friend of mine in America, and berated her for drinking a beer. Or, you know, we don't walk up to people and lecture them if they're outside a pub smoking. So I think we now have to accept that the same thing applies to masks. And it, whether people wear a mask or don't wear a mask, it's, it's their choice. What about shaking hands? I mean, I've never liked that elbow bump, but shaking the hands of a stranger when... I don't know where that hand's been. Um, I'm not so sure about that. But then again, maybe we really do need to bring handshaking back to rebuild the trust and respect between human beings. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I asked this question on, on social media last week because because like you, I'm very unsure about how I feel about, about shaking hands. On one level, I'm anxious for us to get back to a normal life or something approaching a normal life. But I think that a lot of people, and I'm included, feel a bit icky now about touching somebody else's bare skin, even though we know that actually fomite transmission is is relatively uh, low in COVID, that it's it's not a huge issue. You don't really pick it up from surfaces and, and you probably don't pick it up that readily, even from touching somebody else's hand. But I think that, you know, where we used to see a handshake as a way to like, you know, seal a deal or build trust or sort of signal that, you know, I respect you and I, I regard you as an equal. Now you see an outstretched hand coming towards you and it's like this kind of Petri dish of biohazards that's barreling towards you across the open space and you're thinking, oh God, what am I going to do? Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of people don't feel safe about about handshaking. When I asked this on social media, again, opinion was divided. There were a couple of people who said to me, yeah, I was at an event this week, handshakes are back and they were really pleased that handshakes were back. There were a lot more people who just said, nope, not 
not doing it, never going to do it again. Um, and one person actually, when I asked about this on social media, one person who's a, a consultant in a hospital messaged me privately because they, they didn't want to be named, but they said, you know, that they think in like in hospital and in clinical settings that it'll continue to be quite straightforward. And there's a lot of, I think, there's a lot to be said for clarity. And we've had a lot of clarity for two years and now we've got to make our own choices about things, which is much more complicated. But, th- you know, this consultant said, you know, people in, in hospital settings will know that they will be sort of hand washing and keeping their distance, but that they're more worried about what will happen in the wider community where, you know, some people will, will be reluctant to go back to, to shaking hands. And, and as this person put it, what will look worse, declining the offer of an extended hand, you, you know, to shake, that could be insulting, or is it worse to shake someone's hand and then immediately reach for the hand sanitizer or the sink? Or do you sort of just kind of hold your hand out in space like you've touched something contaminated until you can find an appropriate place to, to cleanse it? The advice is... Um, don't rush into anything. Don't make assumptions about where other people are. Greet everybody with a big s- sort of smile and um, open hand gestures and wait and see what happens and open body language. And, and don't make assumptions about handshakes because a lot of people are still really, really uncomfortable about them. Jen, we Irish have never been the most tactile of people when it comes to comparing ourselves with people in France or Spain or Italy. But there was a culture that had started creeping in in, let's say, the 10 to 15 years before the pandemic of of social kissing, of giving someone a peck on the cheek when you saw them. Do you think that'll come back or do you think this is a chance to just say, you know, it's not in our DNA? I'm just, I just don't think it's very Irish really, is it? I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful, civilised phenomenon if you live in a country where you know, your your children come out of the womb instinctively knowing how to use a fish knife. Uh, but that's yeah. just not Ireland. Um, <laughs> and I think we, we did get notions about social kissing, you know, and I, I kind of blame foreign travel and maybe reality TV for it. But we don't know how to do it and we don't do it well. And we sort of end up squaring up to each other like we're two fighters <laughs> in the ring. And you're sort of going, I mean, the, my inner monologue is like, are they going for the right cheek or the left cheek? Will they go for one or two or God forbid, not three? Please, God, no. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And then, you know, what do you do with your hands? and does it turn into a hug and what if you end up bumping lips by accident I just don't think we can do it the way that uh, you know Italians or French people do it and you know there's a really funny theory about social kissing that it, it um, that it started with Saint Paul and he instructed his followers to salute one another with a holy kiss so I've seen some academics speculate that this is why social kissing is so deeply embedded in the culture of Catholic countries mm. but I, I think you know speaking from the vantage point of a country that still has the Angelus twice a day <laughs> um, and are still much more comfortable keeping the Holy Ghost between us when we're saying hello I, I'm not sure that I really totally buy that theory about social kissing in, in Catholic countries So when it comes back to working in a office or shared working space, what should we be thinking if we wake up in the morning with a sniffle or a slight cough or cold symptoms? We've gotten used over the past two years of immediately taking that antigen test and checking that we don't have COVID. But going forward, should we be staying home if we feel okay, or should we be going into the office? I think this is a really easy one to answer. You absolutely stay home if you have a cough or you have a sniffle. I mean, hybrid working has made this quite quite a no-brainer. Even if you know it's not COVID, there's no need to go into work and spread. Like you, I've had three weeks of some kind of upper respiratory virus that isn't COVID, but I've been really limiting my movements just because it's so awkward to be out in public now and to sneeze or to sound like you have a bit of a hoarse throat or or to get a, God forbid, a a coughing fit. But I think the days of thinking that that pile of used Kleenex in your waste paper basket was a 
mark of your mm-hmm. commitment to your employer are just gone. So I think if you have cold, if you have flu symptoms, you you, you just stay at home and you, you keep you keep them to yourself. There are some um, areas where it's a little bit more nuanced. Like I would suffer a bit from seasonal allergies, and I know a lot of people do. I have one child who's a you know really long term allergy sufferer who's allergic to all kinds of things, and I think for those kind of people it's awkward because they can't just lock themselves away. But if you're going you know if you're going to have a fit of sneezing or you're going to have a a fit of coughing when you're out and about in public um, and you know it's an allergy, then it's slightly difficult. I think you have to find a way to try and communicate that to the people around you. You know, if you're in a restaurant and you start sneezing, I often start sneezing after I have a glass of wine. (laughs) And I'll I'll now say to the to the waiter or the server, uh, it's just an allergy. It's not COVID. I'm I'm a total (laughs) over explainer. I'm like, I think I'm allergic to sulfites. It's the sulfites in the wine. No, 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 I'm fine. I'm just letting you know in case you think it's COVID. Um, But I think it's a little bit awkward for those people. But in general, if you're coughing, if you're sneezing, if you have a sore throat, you can stay home and and if, if you're well enough, work from home. What about when it comes to kids? What about the parents who wake up in the morning and their child has a little sniffle and they're really torn between whether to send them to school or not because it will make their lives more complicated to keep them home? Is it the same situation, really? Yeah, I think parents are have been great about this and, and, and generally speaking are really pragmatic and are very understanding about school. And the unspoken kind of rule of thumb is if it's just a sniffle, they go in. If it's a sniffle and they have a second symptom of any kind, if it's a sniffle and a cough or they have a sniffle and a temperature or they have a sniffle and they say their tummy doesn't feel well or lack of appetite, then you keep them home. So, you know, and, and like if they wake up in the middle of the night, then you probably keep them home because it's probably a bit more than a sniffle. Um, antigen testing too has been, you know, really, really brilliant in schools. I think in, in my own household, we picked up um, the, the cases of COVID last week instantly with an antigen test and they have been really effective. Um, all of the parents that I know who have young kids in primary school in particular are regularly antigen testing them and especially if somebody else in the class tests positive. So yeah, I don't think that's an overly complicated one. I think if they just have a runny nose, they can absolutely go in. One of the more depressing knock-on effects of COVID restrictions when it comes to children was telling them that they couldn't have birthday candles on their cakes to avoid the spread of germs. This is something that was being discussed well over a year ago. Is it safe to bring back those candles and other kind of activities similar to that where children were told, no, you have to step back and not spread your germs? It's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I probably wouldn't put birthday candles on a cake just at the moment if I was having other kids around. And actually not really, you know, as a public health measure, because I think small kids are kind of drooling all over each other anyway, yeah. regardless of, of the candles or not. But I think the ick factor is sort of hard to get away from if you're looking at a small child and they're blowing and blowing all over this cake that has sticky icing on it and you know the germs are just going to burrow right in there. So, um, yeah, I think I probably wouldn't do that. I mean, there are companies now offering things like no blow clapping activated LED candles. <laughs> uh, but would you bother? I mean, a sparkler in the cake will do instead. Or you can do what I think some people do is they give the child a cupcake with a candle mm. on it and that's their own little cupcake and they blow that out and then the bigger cake is sliced up and, and kept free. But yeah, I, I think that probably if blowing out birthday candles never comes back, I'll be okay with that because, you know, tummy bugs and like diarrhea and vomiting and flus and colds, they all still exist and they're all, you know, a, a really unwelcome part of, of being a parent to young kids. So if if I can avoid those for longer, I'll be very happy. The end of all these restrictions feels a bit anticlimactic after so long of waiting for it. I mean, should we all be going out and throwing big parties to mark what we hope is the end of this two-year saga? Or is that just not the appropriate way to respond to what's going on? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? I don't know how I'd feel about going to a big party now. And it's so funny because I remember in the early weeks, we all 
sort of met people out and about on our, our two kilometre walks and we sort of stood two and a half metres away from each other and we'd say, now, when this is all over, there's not going to be a Saturday free for months with all the parties we're going to have and we were all kind of planning these parties we'd have. But we thought it was going to last a few weeks and it's gone on for two years now. We've all got a little bit used to, I think, being kind of cocooned at home. You know, I think the mood that I was sensing from people last week is lingering anxiety, a sort of a sense of anticlimax, a feeling that we thought that when we got to the end of this, the reward would be that we would have this huge sense of relief washing over us and we'd all feel great and we'd all be just pick up our lives where, where they left off at the end of February or the beginning of March 2020. And that hasn't happened. And I think maybe we just need to be kind to ourselves and accept that this has been a really weird, strange time. And it would be really weird and strange if we weren't anxious. It really would. Jen, thanks so much for your time as always. No problem, Sirka. Coming up, the impact of the pandemic in numbers. Simon Carswell is the Irish Times public affairs correspondent. Simon, last week the Central Statistics Office published a report into the human and societal impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's start with the human impact of all of this. How many lives were lost to the virus in Ireland over the past two years? And what could the CSO tell us about these people? Well, this snapshot that the CSO produced was fascinating. Uh, A lot of the statistics in the bulletin that they released had already been out there. But what they did, which was very clever, was to pull it all together. So we had a kind of one-stop shop to go and see the impact of the pandemic on the country. And uh, obviously the the figures on the COVID deaths jump out. I mean, that's the most uh, impactful stat to show what happened to this this country during the COVID-19 pandemic. And more than uh, 6,200 people died as a result of COVID. And what those statistics showed was that older people were affected the most. We knew that. We knew that people of a certain age were were, uh, most vulnerable to COVID-19. And it showed that nine in every 10 people who died from the virus were aged 65 years and older. And CSO stats also showed what was the worst period in the pandemic. The third wave was the worst wave, the the third wave that hit in Christmas of 2020, leading into January and February 2021. And more than 1,000 people died in that period. So that was um, an example of just the worst point that the country went through on this. And also, older people were most affected when it came to hospitalisation. The age group, uh, the 65 and over age group, accounted for half of those who were hospitalised during the pandemic. There's also been huge unemployment, of course, over the past two years. What kind of impact did the pandemic have on people's jobs and also creating far more of a financial inequality in this country? The jobs that were affected most, if you can imagine any jobs that involved mingling with people, uh, those were the most affected because they had to be shut down. And with the first lockdown, it follows that the unemployment rate adjusted to take account of, of people who were out of work because of um, COVID-19. That peaked in April 2020. So the first lockdown that we had in between March and May of 2020 was the worst. And that rate peaked at 30%. So almost one in three people were out of work during that time. And if you look at how the government reacted, the cost to the state, the pandemic unemployment rate uh, payment that was paid, this emergency measure that was introduced by the government, that covered a lot of those people who were who were um, out of work. So 
like the number of people unemployed was at its highest in the first lockdown. The number of people claiming PUP was at its highest in the first lockdown. And about 600,000 people were claiming the pandemic unemployment payment in April and May of 2020. To give you an idea how far we've come from that and with the easing of restrictions uh, in recent weeks, there's about 67,000 people now on the pandemic unemployment payment. So that's quite a drop to roughly about a tenth of what it was. So it goes to show how far we've come uh, from the worst days of the pandemic. Simon, you mentioned that 67,000 people are still receiving the pandemic unemployment payment. Can you give us a snapshot of who these people are and what will happen to them when the PUP ends? Broken down the figures shown by the government, uh, most of the people would be in, again, public facing roles. So places like uh, restaurants and cafes that haven't reopened or shops that haven't reopened. So broken down, uh, the government says there's about 15,000 in accommodation and food services. There's about almost 11,000 in retail and wholesale trade. And then there's about 7,000 in administrative and support services. So those are people whose jobs haven't come back yet. They just, their, their, their places of business haven't reopened. Most of those would fall into that category. In terms of how they're planning to end this, what's going to happen is the pandemic unemployment payment is regarded as an emergency payment. So eventually the people who are on it will transition to the regular unemployment benefit, which is the standard job seekers allowance. And that'll happen from April. Uh, so that's going to transition as we move out of these uh, COVID emergency measures that the government introduced because of the pandemic. There were some really interesting stats from the CSO last week about how crime changed during the pandemic. What kind of changes have we seen in crime? Well, if you look at the crime stats, and I think there's some of the most interesting stats that have been produced showing the social impact of the pandemic uh, on the country. And it kind of follows with if people are at home more, certain crime can't happen. So, for example, burglaries were down 36% during the pandemic. Thefts were down 20%. Robberies by by 18%. And what was interesting is people moved to um, to buy online and to shop online. Uh, the number of frauds online were up as well. It was up 72%. So this remarkable change in the nature of crime that took place because of how people's lives were changed and how they were adapting to pandemic. And the more interesting stats as well were some on the homicide figures. Uh, the combined number of murder and manslaughter incidents fell by 15 and there were 25 fewer incidents classified as dangerous driving leading to death. So that's an example of people weren't out on the roads um, and people weren't mixing as much. So as a result, those kind of serious crimes were down. And uh, on the flip side, sexual offences increased by 286. They were up 9% in the 12 months to September of, of 2021, which would suggest people at home more um, and that leaves them exposed to sexual crimes and a lot of... We We've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence of uh, domestic violence cases increasing during the pandemic as people were living um, and locked up at home. So the crime stats were fascinating uh, as produced by the CSO. And since March 2020, since this all began, we've also witnessed a transfer of power from Fine Gael, who led the early months of the pandemic to the Fine Gael, Fine Foyle, Greens three-party coalition taking over in June 2020. Politically, what do you think, Simon, will be the legacy of these leaders? How do you think historians will judge them in 20 or 50 years time? And also, how will they judge our national response to this pandemic? I think comparatively with other countries, we did pretty well. We were kind of in the middle to lower half of um, fatalities, mortalities from COVID-19. And I think that shows that we, we did well. I think some of the lockdowns and the length of the lockdowns were amongst the, the longest in the world uh, in Ireland in terms of our restrictions. I think there'll be a look back as to whether 
we needed to have the restrictions in place for quite so long and whether other measures could have taken. I think there's huge questions to be asked about the preparation for a pandemic. Um, early on, our access to PPE was very poor. The testing capacity was extremely poor and was a real problem in the first wave in particular was a reason why we the restrictions lasted so long in my view in the first wave if we had been better prepared to be able to detect where the virus was in the community we might have had a better chance of getting out of lockdown earlier certainly in the first lockdown and I think the big the big look back and big mistakes that were made were in the area of nursing homes and congregated settings and residential institutions there was uh, really they were left out on their own um i spoke to i've spoken to lots of people in nursing homes and many say that they use the word abandoned they felt abandoned by the government early on in the first stages and if you look at the figures the horrifying thing about the number of deaths in nursing homes the third wave was worse than the first wave for 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 deaths in nursing homes which really says that we didn't learn what we should have learned between the first and third waves and to how to protect our older population. As I said earlier, the concentration of deaths were in people aged 65 and older, and they were concentrated in particular in residential settings. It follows that if people are living in close, close quarters in places like nursing homes, they are going to get infected. So I think we're going to have to look at the whole model of care for our older generation, for our vulnerable population in that age group, and look at how we care for our elderly population. And I think that's there's going to be huge reflections needed and uh, huge acknowledgements of the mistakes made and huge changes in the whole area of nursing home care. Simon, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Jennifer O'Connell and Simon Carswell. Today's episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>